Please take a copy of the Bible, whether it be the blue one in front of you or the one you brought, and open up to Acts chapter 4. Acts 4.32, we're going to go all the way through the end of chapter 5 this morning. That's my aim, at least. Uh, if you'll find this on the blue, the blue Bible, it's on page 912, as we continue our study through the book of Acts as a church. I have a feeling that this coming weekend, I'm going to get a real-life reminder that choices have consequences. For the better part of 15 years, even though I've said I've needed to do it, I have managed to largely sidestep physical exercise. But on Friday at the men's retreat, we're going to play dodgeball. And just thinking about sprinting in a gym and throwing a ball makes my lungs burn and my shoulder hurt. And next Sunday, when I'm Lord willing, standing here, preaching with sore muscles and an achy arm, I will not be able to ignore that my choice to not exercise has real consequences. Delayed consequences to choices we make can give the illusion that the consequences must not be that dire. Until the consequences finally come, and we find ourselves saying, why did I ever make that choice? Our passage this morning examines choices and consequences. Some immediate, some delayed, but all equally dire. They are consequences suffered because of choices made in response to God as the king and his call to be part of his kingdom. In Acts, we've been seeing this theme of Jesus' kingdom advancing. And as it does, those who confront it are faced with a choice. Give up their power and surrender to Jesus's or resist. Already, the Jewish religious council has resisted, but it did nothing to stop Jesus' kingdom from advancing. In our passage this morning, that same council will double down on their efforts. And we'll see if the increased pushback does anything to deter the kingdom of God. So far in this book of Acts, apart from the evident folly of trying to stop something so powerful as God... There really haven't been any obvious consequences to resisting God's kingdom. But that changes as we enter Acts chapter 5. God is the high king who is building a holy kingdom. And these two truths have great bearing on our lives. So that is the direction we're going to go this morning. Two parts of my sermon, if you're taking notes. Two truths about God for us here in this passage for us to consider. The first, God's holy kingdom. God's holy kingdom. And we'll look at Acts 4, 32 to 5, 11. And then in the rest of the section, Acts 5, 12 through 42, we'll consider the second part of my sermon, God the high king. God the high king. My aim for all of us is to examine how we are choosing to live whether it be inside his kingdom or outside. And my prayer for all of us is that we not suffer the consequences for sin, but instead enjoy a holy life under his rule. 
So let's start by, by thinking about a holy kingdom and how that's revealed in this passage. I'm going to start reading in Acts 4, verse 32, and stop at verse 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Those verses describe life in Jesus' kingdom. And the description here, it, it sounds too good to be true. People living open-handedly, giving what is theirs for others, no envy or fighting over stuff, no kids fighting over toys, no keeping up with the Joneses. And this is the kind of thing that we just regularly pessimistically dismiss, mumbling something under our breath about communism and cults. I agree, humanity has tried to manufacture this kind of a community time and time again and have failed. But where they fail due to a reliance on a false idea of human goodness, the church in Acts succeeds due to a dependence on the Holy Spirit and Jesus who has sent him. He is the source of this church's remarkably unified life. Verse 33 says, The church was preferring each other over themselves because of Christ's resurrection power and Holy Spirit grace at work among them. This Jesus kingdom is meant to be distinct from the world. Outside the church, we are not surprised to see materialism and selfishness and divisiveness. But Jesus died to release us from those bonds. He set us free to live for the good of each other. God wants the world to witness something unthinkable among us here. Where people truly love each other more than they love themselves. Church, if in any way we aren't that. Pray that he will lead us to see it. And by his power and his grace, make us to be his distinct people. The church will live as one with God if she stays protected from the infiltration of sin. The Bible tells us that God's spirit lives among us. He is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit aims to make us a holy people. People set apart, people consecrated for the work of God. Which means when sin enters our church... Where the Holy Spirit lives, we should expect the Holy Spirit to address it. And he does in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. Follow along as I read that. 
But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the lamb for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I assume that even if you've heard that story before, it jars you to hear it again. Understandably. The quick and immediate deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, the gravity of the punishment over what may seem to some of us a fairly insignificant transgression, lying. People responded in fear to this event. And so should we. We should feel uncomfortable. What did Ananias and Sapphira do that brought their death? Well, the lives Ananias and Sapphira were attempting to live were in direct contrast to the life the Holy Spirit was making for his people. They brought deception, lies, selfishness, and Satan into the Holy Kingdom. So when the Holy Spirit saw this, he removed the threat of sin, ruining what he was making. The holiness of God purifies sin from within the people of God. Some of us may feel uncomfortable because of what God does here. How could God do such a thing? How could he be so swift, so final? Perhaps you've grown up hearing only that God is a God of love or grace. And he is those things. And he is those things completely and perfectly. But there are other aspects of who he is which are equally true and important for you to know. For me to believe. Particularly here we see God is holy. That means his character is such that he rightly and justly punishes Anything that attempts to bring evil and untruth into the world that he has made. He reserves that right. 
holy actions of judgment against sin are completely consistent with God's character when he pursues them. So it is an error to say the God of the Old Testament was a holy and wrathful God, but the God of the New Testament is a God of grace and love. That is clearly refuted right here. God is unchanging and so is as holy today as he ever was, even as he was in Leviticus 10 that we heard read earlier when two men offer unauthorized worship and they're struck dead in the Old Testament. He's just as holy here. I even think when compared to what God did in the Garden of Eden, this episode in the New Testament church's life shows us an even more fearful portrait of God's holiness. In Eden, when Satan brought deception into the garden and Adam and Eve lied to God about their actions and God confronted them with the truth, God didn't strike them down right then and there. He did pronounce a curse of death. But God let them live on the basis of a promise that a redeemer would come who would come and take away the punishment they deserve. That deliverer was Jesus who died in their place and took justice on himself. And so the unchanging holiness of God is satisfied when Jesus takes your sin on the cross. Those who repent of your sin and trust in him. But now here on the other side of that promise and the promised deliverer in the new covenant community, all has been given and no more gifts should be expected. And if Jesus' sacrifice and his Holy Spirit and his call to follow in Christ's righteous life is still not convincing enough to steer a person away from their selfishness and sin, there is only then judgment and death. If you want to read more about that, read the chapter of Hebrews, Hebrews 6, later today. In a way, this fateful event in in Acts was a replay of Eden. Satan enters Ananias' heart, brings deception. A man and woman believe the lie. They act on it. They bring sin into God's new creation, the church. And while Adam and Eve united God's physical creation to sin, Ananias and Sapphira go one step further and attempt to unite God's spirit dwelling in his church to sin. And God will have none of it. God is committed to a plan to make his people pure because of the work his son did to die to make us holy. He will not relent from refining sin out of us by whatever means necessary. Church, this section of the Bible is for us. This is a church life passage with church life applications. This happened inside the church, not outside it. Ananias and Sapphira, I assume, likely professed to know Jesus Christ. They gathered with God's people. They were coming. They put money in the offering plate. I don't know if there's anything we can say about where they ended up after they died, but in this life, they serve as a warning to us. The church of Jesus Christ is the place where he is making us holy. And the Holy Spirit is set on accomplishing the mission for which Jesus died and rose. 
The Holy Spirit gives us this whole passage to direct us to address any way we are treating God as less than holy or his, or his church as less than his holy kingdom. So here are some holy reminders we're being given through Ananias and Sapphira. Every time we sin, it is against God directly. Every time we sin, we bring what God hates to God as if he shouldn't hate it. Every time we sin, we reject the love of God in Jesus Christ. Every time we sin, God would be just to take our lives. Is God that holy to me? Is God that holy to you? Is God that holy to us? If not, whatever we think we're doing in our lives before God, it isn't worship as God understands it. I imagine Ananias and Sapphira thought their partial act of giving a gift at church on Sunday counted for a good act, even if it wasn't as much as they could have brought. But through Peter, we hear that God could have cared less if they had ever sold the field. That wasn't the point. They could have kept the field. They could have used it for something else. They could have even brought part of the proceeds as a gift, which is why I don't think God is a communist. I think he is fine for us to have personal property. But where they cross the line, the issue is that they introduce untruth as an acceptable form of worship to the one true and holy God. They did not worship him in spirit and in truth. They assumed that God would be happy with an offering of worship brought in selfishness and lies. The holy eyes of God burn through all our outward shows of worship and expose what we really worship in our hearts. It does not matter if we raise our hands when we sing or not. Whether we give 1% or 10% or 100% of our paycheck in our church. If we show up to every opportunity to serve, it doesn't matter. God calls for all those things, but they are meant to be an expression of our true desires that come from within us. If you raise your hands to sing because God is holy in your eyes, that's true worship. If you give 1% or 100% because you love God more than money and you want his glory to be made known through that gift, that's true worship. If you serve God's people because Christ came and served you, that's the heart of a true worshiper. But if we don't, we might fool this whole place. But the Holy Spirit sees and he marks that as sin deserving of death. We should tremble with fear. Yours and my knees should buckle under the weight of knowing that we are a people prone to false worship of all sorts and kinds. Marvin, I so appreciate your prayer of confession where you would just not relent 
from categorizing and repeating. I'm sure what God was working on in your own heart and was working in mine, I trust in many of us, is the anvil of conviction over the sinners that we are just wouldn't let up. That's how we should feel before the holiness of God. Haven't we kept back a part of most things for ourselves this week and thought it fine? And if you bristle, pushing back at his judgment in this passage, you're still not seeing the severity and wickedness of our sin. Do we really dare to insist that God, perfect and holy and good and true, insists that he would turn a blind eye when we reject the gift of his son's death to make us clean? Do we really presume upon him the consuming fire we sang about to allow us to bring our rebellion and filth and deception and insurrection and self-worship right up into his face and him overlook it? I'm sure, I am certain that as a Christian, time and time again, I've done similar things to what Ananias and Sapphira did. And yet I still live. The New Testament contains few stories like this, although there are more, as we read from Leviticus in the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians, there were people getting sick and dying for wrongly taking the Lord's Supper, which is why we try to be really careful, just with that as a reminder. But this is a unique event. An example the Holy Spirit is making of this sin to, to show for all the ages of the church after with what kind of reverence and fear we should approach our lives within his kingdom and among his people. God always wants us to remember that he will not have his son's holy sacrifice yield anything less than holy people. So why aren't you and I dead? Even though we confess we brought our false worship to Jesus. Even when we are claiming to follow him. Well, it's not because we're better. It's because our holy God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We have not received from his hand what we deserve. God in his grace and his mercy has forestalled judgment so that you might hear of Christ. And then in hearing of him, hear how the judgment of his holiness fell on his son Jesus instead of you and me. Brothers and sisters, the only way the holy kingdom ever gets built or remains is because of the power and grace of Jesus Christ. So mark that the holiness of God is a dreadful and fearful thing to come under when it opposes your choices. Christians, this passage presses us to let go of sin of any and all kinds. Confess it. For your own sake, for the sake of our church, confess it and leave it. Better to leave our sin behind when we join ourselves to the church than to have the Holy Spirit use the church to identify and discipline us due to our unrepentant sin. But I also want to ease up a little. Deliberately heavy. Deliberately pressing. But I want to make sure we see that God's holiness is something we can enjoy and not just fear. 
The same Holy Spirit judging Ananias and Sapphira is the one producing the wonderful community of verse 32 to 37 in chapter 4. When God is the subject of our single and soul worship, then we get to experience amazing things together. This is the life produced by the gospel and the power of the spirit and his grace at work among us. We can expect that the sweetness of their fellowship will characterize ours. Worshiping the Lord by leaving our lives in his hands and leaving our sin behind is the path to a joyful church life. We only threaten the sweetness of our fellowship when we entertain selfishness. We only jeopardize getting to see God work through our generosity toward each other when we keep back parts of our lives just for ourselves. When we confess our sins to each other, when we gather and confess them as we did this morning, we together walk away from a life of separation from God and each other, and we walk toward a life with God together. A Holy Spirit-filled church is a holy church. And a holy church enjoys freedom from sin and unity with God in each other. So how do we get in on this life? Well, we receive the gift of the gospel of Jesus with open arms. We avail ourselves of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ to make us new creations. We lean and depend and rely and ask for his constant, steady, strengthening grace to help us say no to sin and yes to holiness and to do it with one another. That's how. What a privilege. What a privilege to live in his holy kingdom. But let's move on. In chapter 5, verse 12, the focus shifts from inside the church to outside the church. And in chapter 5, verse 12 through 42... We see point number two, the high king, the high king. I'm going to read that now. Starting in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even carried, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up. And all who were with them, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard those words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. 
But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is a man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house... They did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. The apostles have already encountered this group of opponents back in chapter 4. Last time, after Peter and John healed a crippled man in Jesus' name, the council locked them up and interrogated them, commanding them not to teach any more about how they had seen Jesus crucified and resurrected. But the apostles were not getting their message. And so we're back at it in 5, 12 through 16. God's spirit works in remarkable ways through them. Many more people are experiencing healing in Jesus' name. So, the council redoubles their efforts at silencing the apostles and arrests them again. Their intention this time is to question and threaten the apostles after having them stay a night in jail. But not all goes according to their plan. God sends an angel who releases the men from prison... And tells them to go back to teaching. By the next day, it was as if the council hadn't done anything to deter the message of Jesus going out. When they finally get the apostles in front of them to question them, the council hears that the apostles never had any intention of cowing to their threats. Their allegiance is clear in verse 29. We must obey God rather than men. And in verse 30 through 32, Peter explains that the council would do well to recognize the kingly status Jesus holds and turn from their own rebellion and obey Jesus too. But the council won't do that. Instead, their jealousy of the apostles' ministry and their anger at the apostles' defiance grows and thoughts of murder begin turning in their minds. Only the politically shrewd advice of Gamaliel stays their rage. Who suggests that they just kind of passively step back and see if this is all just God or just men. So with all the bluster, chapter 5 ends with the apostles doing exactly what they were doing before. Verse 42, teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So this section presents two groups of people. The apostles who obey God and the council who do anything but. And in this futile effort of the council to silence the apostles, we see God. 
the supreme authority, the highness who rules. As you read through that, especially thinking about what just happened in chapter four, didn't you just, you read it. His, God's control of this is so obvious that we as readers wonder, how could the council be missing it? Record numbers of healings as a result of Jesus' name. The holy presence of God among his people. The miraculous rescue from prison. What more do they need to see or to believe that this is God working? The problem in their hearts is that to confess Jesus is Lord and believe he is king would be to necessarily relinquish their own standing. But that's what the council is so desperate to protect. They want the esteem of the people, and they're jealous when the spotlight turns to the apostles in verse 17. They want popular approval, and fear of losing that governs their actions in verse 26. They want to find a course that allows them to remain agnostic about Jesus, but at the same time gain a political advantage by not outwardly opposing the potentially flash-in-the-pan ministry of the apostles, as we see in verse 39. Gamaliel's advice was clearly a political move. Because the council still insists on the apostles' silence before releasing them. Oh, and a good beating at that. The tension of the narrative of the kingdoms colliding is building and the levy will break. The council finds itself caught under the flood of a sweeping move of God. And they are trying desperately to swim against the current. I wonder if that describes you. Perhaps you can't deny there's a higher power, but that is as far as you'll go. Maybe you'd even say Jesus was a man who lived and even died on a cross, but you stopped short of believing in his resurrection. Your strategy right now about this whole Christianity thing might be like Gamaliel. Step aside. Watch for a while. See which way the current goes. You don't outright oppose God, but you're also not going out of your way to identify with Jesus or his people. But if God is the king who heals and delivers and calls for everybody here to receive life in his kingdom, like the apostles were telling the people and like I'm telling you, why are you holding out? What advantage is it to you to watch the parade of God's power pass you by and you receive none of the blessing? No advantage at all. If you cannot stop God from doing what he plans to do, and if God's stated and evident will is to have people know Jesus as their leader and their savior, then the only thing left you need to do is relinquish your desire and attempt to be the king of your own life. Instead of trying to simply stay out of God's way when he comes through, welcome him instead a better choice to bring his kingdom into your heart while he is here. Turn from your sin. See that Christ died to forgive it and take it. See that he has willingly done that as an act of his grace. To take the holy wrath of God for you. And in trade give you his righteousness and his life. And a life that lasts forever with him. Take that. Take it as it's offered. The highness of God is a direct challenge on any other authority we are trying to hold or live under. Christians, this passage reminds us that the fear of what other people think 
can be a kind of rule we submit to other than God's. The council wanted the attention. They wanted the approval. They wanted the praise from people. So their lives were like a a boat out to sea, shifting direction with every passing wind, never finding land. Do you feel out of control when you're not sure how other people think of you? Do you get nervous for like 30 minutes about how what you choose to wear that day is going to be received by the people seeing you wear it? Do you find it hard to say no to things because you don't want to disappoint people, but when saying no is the way to prioritize the responsibilities God gives you? Fear can be such a crippling thing. It's no wonder that Jesus comes and tells us that he came to release us from it. The apostles are an example to us of men who know who they're living for. They are like boulders unmoved, even though the council keeps coming against them in waves. The apostles are enjoying a life under their king. They enjoy confidence. They enjoy knowing they are secure even in trial. They enjoy courage and boldness and witness. They enjoy and they rejoice that their lives are being used for the glory of Jesus Christ, even though their lives are marked by distinct suffering. And if you are a Christian, all those things are things that should sound like a joyful life to you. Perhaps right now that joyful life seems elusive to us as Christians. Our zeal to tell people about Jesus wanes. We grow weary in the onslaught of a culture who doesn't want Jesus as king. We are more afraid of losing things in this life than we are secure in knowing that we have already gained Christ. We lose our desire to obey as we wait through seemingly unending days of suffering. But the apostles faced all that too. And yet new joy. So what is their secret? How do we get in on their joy? Well, the plain and simple message of the gospel led to the apostles' life of joy in the face of suffering. Do you notice when the apostles say they must obey God rather than man in verse 29? Immediately after, they confess that God is their high king through the gospel. What is on their mind when they say we must obey God rather than man? It's verse 30 to 32. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. To the apostles, the good news is good news for them. And good news for anybody who will believe it. Church, the gospel will, has always been, and will remain to be our good news. We have a high king who saved us and who leads us. The one who was humiliated and executed in order to mercifully forgive us and call us his own holy people. That's the one who now sits on the throne. And when we have a king who came and died and lives and reigns and applies his power to our lives every moment of every day, is there any good reason we have to fear church? Can you tell me one thing we need to worry about? 
We certainly don't need to fear death because Jesus will lead us through that. What else? We certainly don't need to fear we won't have the approval of others because what good is a man's approval if you don't have the king's favor? Should we fear that our lives won't go a certain way? No, because it's Jesus who leads us according to his paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Should we fear to speak of Jesus then? There's not a man or woman or government, no family member, no co-worker, no classmate, no store clerk, who we should be afraid to tell this gospel to when the Holy Spirit's power is dwelling in us. When God reigns in our hearts, fear and anxiety will not. When God is our high king, obedience will be the evidence of our lives. And that obedience will feel less like something we must do and more like something we get to do. The gospel assures us that even in hardship and trial, Christ's name will be honored. So let's wrap this up. Acts 4 and 5 show us a high king who is after our purity and who is worthy of our obedient worship. Is that the choice you and I are making with our lives? With his all-seeing view, he sees us this morning. He sees our hearts. He hears lies being believed. He hears lies we're trying to tell him. He discerns where we're fearful, resistant to his salvation or his rule. And in love and mercy and kindness, he invites us to give him our lives, all of it. The sin that needs to be forgiven and walked away from. And the lives that are left to be lived that he will gladly reign over and in. If we leave here simply trying to get out of the king's way like the council, there will be a dire consequence. Our sinful rebellion and us with it will be swept away in his holy judgment, just like Ananias and Sapphira. But if we allow him, if we allow ourselves really, weak and sinful though we are, to be carried into the streets for healing as the king comes through, he will welcome us to enjoy all the benefits of his kingdom with him. Church, because of the gospel, we are God's holy kingdom. Let's go and live joyfully obedient lives for our high king. Let's pray. Lord, to what degree the conviction that rings in our minds and hearts this morning, to what degree it is from you and meant to grab and arrest our attention and lead us to confession. 
forgiveness applied through the cross. Seeking of you again to walk with you and for you and behind you in obedience. To whatever degree you are at work in that way, let it not be quickly forgotten. Let us not quickly move past what you aim to do. What seed your word has planted in our hearts and minds that you would have us care for and tend to. Seek your face in and respond in worship. Lord, we are too aware of too many failings on our part. Before your holiness, we become very aware that on our own merits and our own deeds, we perish. By your grace, make us aware also that Christ died a sufficient death to cover our sins and have us walk in newness of his life. Apply healing to our broken hearts. Bring salvation to stubborn people. God, make us your holy people. That you would be witness to in this place as a holy God deserving of all worship. And make us a people who enjoy life and obedience to you. That people would see that the Father who loves us is a, is a God and a Lord and a Savior we love to have lead us. Work in this way. We ask you, we must have you work, Lord. We must have your word applied with the Spirit's power to take us into this life. So please do it and give us eyes to see it so that we may wonder and rejoice again that we get to live a life for Jesus' name. We pray in his name. Amen.